Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. I have a very special guest with me today. She's a relationship therapist and the host of the Connectfulness podcast, and also my friend, Rebecca Wong. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, LaShonda. I am so thankful that you are here with us today, and I am going to start, like I do with all of my guests, and ask, what is your labor of love? Mm. I think my labor of love is not so far off from yours, and it's probably why we jive together so much. It's really about generational healing. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So uh, tell us what that means for you. What is generational healing? Mm. You know, maybe, maybe it's best if I kind of start with my own story a little bit, Um, and I'll just mention briefly in there that my paternal grandparents were both Holocaust survivors. And so the stories that got passed down to me as a young girl about what they had survived, um, and then the juxtaposition of who my father was and how rigid he was in many ways, um, trying to understand all of that and find my own truth in the world, um, really became quite a journey that led me into learning more about generational healing. And so when I think of what generational healing is, I think about, you know, they say that it takes at least three generations to break a cycle. (laughs) Um, And often that means that we, we have to sit with what the lessons are that have been taught to us. We have to be able to really get brave and look backwards um, at the generations that came before us and look forwards at where we want to continue and who we want to be and be able to be that brave one who can show up and face those flames and change the legacy. That is so well put. Um, I, I really appreciate that. I think in my own journey, I had gotten really good at the looking back, right? Mm-hmm but I wasn't so good initially at the looking forward. Mm -hmm. So there was a focus on the generational trauma, but there for me for a while, wasn't uh, as much of a focus on the generational healing. And part of that is because I I don't know that I actually knew it was a thing. Yeah. I just started with, I, it, it wasn't even healing. Like, I just don't want this to go forward. So there was a moment of, I got to stop it. But I didn't even realize um, until more recently and you saying what you just said, really uh, activating this within me is that not just stopping it, but then propelling a different legacy forward, Yeah, which is huge, huge, huge. So thank you so much for uh, sharing that. So can you tell us a little bit about how this shows up in your life? It shows up everywhere. I don't think there's anywhere it doesn't. 
um, it shows up in my work. It shows up in my partnership. It shows up in my parenting. It shows up in my friendships. Um, it shows up everywhere, like every aspect of who I am. These no, I, imprints are are present in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I just, sorry, I just had this thought like, Ooh, so I have been wanting, (laughs) this is, this is, this is not when you signed up, probably necessarily the direction you thought it was going to go, but I have been wanting for quite some time to spend a little bit of time talking specifically about parenting, Mm -hmm. parenting from a position of healing Mm -hmm. versus wounding. Uh, you willing to go down that road? I'm totally willing to go there. Let's do it. I, I was literally thinking before, like, I need to bring someone. I really want to talk about parenting because parenting is by far the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and I've done some hard stuff. Yep. Okay. Yep. And yet uh, rearing children on their path, not mine, through unconditional acceptance, love and empowerment without breaking their spirit is just like, what? How? How? So yeah, I like this. Yeah, okay, that sounds so. really lofty, doesn't it? <laughs> what, when you think about how generational healing shows up in your parenting mm-hmm. specifically, what are some of the things that come to mind for you? So one of the biggest things is acknowledging when I mess up. Mm. And it might not sound like it's so big to say, but it is, I mean, like this is the big missing link. When I look back at how I was raised and what was missing and and all of the littles that live inside of me um, and what they need or still need. um, It's acknowledgement. They needed to know that, um, you know, as you say, they they need that rightful reassignment of responsibility. They need to not carry everything that Mm -hmm. isn't theirs. And so when I mess up as a parent and I do, I have my moments where you know, maybe like the 50th time I've told them to pick up the stuff on their floor and they haven't done it, I might say it way too loud and yell it um, and shame them in some way. And um, I think it's really important that I own that and acknowledge it and apologize for it, make amends, do that repair work with them in that moment. When do you think you even realize that that was... Uh, an appropriate or reasonable course of action? Because just based on your introduction, it doesn't necessarily sound like that was modeled for you. So So where, how did you even come to realize like that's a thing that could or should be done? My daughter, my oldest tells me that the, the moment it started to really change was when I went on my first intensive to do my own trauma work. Mm. I came back different. How old was she? Oh, gosh. I have to do some math. Hold on. It's not okay. my strongest suit. <laughs> um, she she must have been probably about eight-ish or so at the time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, she recognized the difference, mm-hmm. and she was at an age where she could articulate that and, yeah. and, and notice it. Yeah, that's very powerful. Um, I will frequently say my girls, my twins – they got me at a good time. Like, mm. you know, self-discovery. <laughs> I'm still learning. My son, I had a lot longer with him, you know, and it is just very interesting how um, my perspective on parenting continues to shift as I heal. 
Yeah. And as you talk about the acknowledgement and owning when you've done something, um, that you don't feel so proud of. Yeah. That you don't feel proud of that you could have done better. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest challenges for me with that in the beginning is not, it's just culturally like that's the parental parental right. Like (laughs) if that makes sense growing up, it was, I, I mean, and I don't, I, you know, I don't want to say this as if like my parents never apologize, but to Uh be fair, I dedicated my whole life to not doing things that they, you know, that would get me in trouble. So I try to mitigate that experience of shame and in getting in trouble by doing whatever I needed to do to not put myself in that position. And mm-hmm. in that, that older, putting myself in a position not to get caught. I was really good at mm-hmm. that. Um, but I, I, this instance, it, it sticks out in my mind so much. And I, I can't tell you how old I was. I honestly, I, I don't even remember. Um, but I remember being in the upstairs den Something happened. Um, get in trouble was too hard. Cause like I said, I didn't do things to get in trouble. Um, but maybe I had said something with an attitude. So I was an adolescent, definitely an adolescent. And I think I understood that like I could say things to my dad in a certain way. Yeah. He wouldn't respond the way my mom would, but I said it and And like, if my mom overheard, she would then like get on me kind of like, who do you think you're talking to kind of thing, even if I wasn't talking to her. So I think this was the scenario, if I can set it up for you. So whatever it was, I think I said something to my dad with kind of, you know, what was called in quote unquote attitude. And as I was, and she might've checked me and said something about it, but as I was walking out the room, he reached for something. So he ended up hitting me is what happened, but it was very unintentional. And I, it, not only did it surprise me, but it like, I, I, I think I went through a whole flood of emotions because my father had never, ever, ever hit me. Yeah. And in the midst of this experience, he did, um, even though it was an accident, I don't know that I perceived it in the immediacy as an accident, but my mother's response was, he, yo daddy, he can do anything he wants. And that stuck. So it, yeah, that stuck. That stuck. And it's interesting. um, You know, I've shared before that, I mean, up to that point, before I even started kindergarten, I had multiple instances of sexual abuse by similar age peers. But it would be after that event that I would be raped. Mm. And when I think about the message I got, Certain people can do whatever they want. My body was not my own. I did not get control or say or autonomy over who did what to it or or who had access to it and those things. And it's that moment where she would have never thought that's what she, the lesson she was giving me. I, I think if when she listens to this, she will go, oh my God, right? But as parents, so that's why it's tricky for me. This is why parenting is so challenging because there is the lesson I think I'm giving and then there are the takeaways that my child will have based on how I interact with them and engage with them in every interaction. 
and being able to be present enough to be authentic and safe, but also being aware of the impact that my words and my facial expressions and my body language will have on their interpretation of who they are is huge. So big. It's, it's so big. And, and I think one of the lessons that I've learned through making mistakes, because let's face it, that's how most of us learn, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is that there's also a lot of room for repair. Like I can get it wrong and notice that I got it wrong and make a reach out to repair. And I can do that in the moment instead of letting it fester for 20 or 30 years. And that makes a really big difference. Huge difference. And I remember on a couple of occasions when I would go to apologize to my son, (laughs) like the first time, I think it just, it was just the look on his face. He was like, okay. Like I was torn up about something, went to apologize. And and the nonverbals he gave me were like, I forgot about that. You know, like <laughs> it, it, for him, he it wasn't registering in that moment as if it was a really big deal. Yeah. But I think the thing I realized is whether he recognized it in the moment or not, he didn't think it was a big deal because I was creating his normal. Yeah. So normals don't seem like a big deal. They just seem like okay, whatever. It it is what it is. And so being able to reshape the normal, to reshape the it is what it is, that's where some of this powerful uh, parenting, I believe, really comes into play. Totally. And, you know, if if I may, there's a wonderful newish book um, called The Power of Discord. Have you seen this? I have not. It's by Ed Tronick and I think um, Claudia Gold. and it, it's this wonderful book that talks about infant development, but it also talks about um, adults and relationships and, and love relationships and kind of everything in between. Um, it looks at business relationships and all this other stuff. And, and what they really break down, in, and they use science to kind of help with this. Um, Edtronic developed the still face experiment back in the 70s, and, and okay. they kind of bring that into this. Um, what they really break down is that we don't have to get it right all the time, that in fact, the discord and the not being in attunement and the getting it wrong and then reaching for repair, that reaching for repair is actually where intimacy and trust is built. That's powerful. And and it, and it I can see evidence of that in my life and across yeah. all relationships, right? And it is the repairing the rupture. Yeah. And I've said this before that... I, as, as a person who works with couples and families, as a person who's been coupled and is part of a family, mm-hmm. I know that there can often be a lot of intentional effort that goes into avoiding rupture. And when that happens for the duration or the beginning of a relationship, what happens is there's an underdeveloped muscle for repair. Mm-hmm. And so when you have the privilege of talking to people or even being part of relationships that are healthy, solid, that that are intimate and all of those things, those people will tell you it's not for lack of rupture, right? It's for the repairs that happen. And I've seen a number of relationships that have gone a long period of time without rupture and they have thought that that made a quality relationship. But you know what? The first rupture that came, they didn't know what to do. They had no idea. And it was comparatively, if you will, 
a smaller rupture, but because there was no muscle developed in repair, that small rupture seems like the Grand Canyon. They, they couldn't even piece it back together. And then there's the other side too, right? And And I think, I know I've experienced this in my family of origin relationships, and I know that many of us and maybe this entire country is experiencing this on a massive scale right now, where there are massive ruptures and they're dismissed and they're not talked about. Mm-hmm. Because somehow if we don't go there, then it didn't really happen, right? It's all yeah. in your mind and mm-hmm. you're making it up and that's your perspective, but it's not really the whole truth. That I mean, that's not how I see it. So it can't be the truth. And that just feels so slimy and gross. Yep. It, it, is, it, <laughs> it is the lived experience of being gaslighted your whole yeah. life. Yeah. You know, it's, it's um, I wrote... Um, I, I'm writing and not necessarily right now writing what I quote unquote should be writing, (laughs) which is this book, but I'm writing and I realize I'm writing what I need to be writing at this moment. But I, I wrote, uh, something that essentially, um, helped me realize that I had in some way, shape or form been gaslighted so much of my life that I ended up doing it to myself. Mm Mm-hmm. That well, that's the thing, idea. right? Because we end yeah. up pulling that wool over our own eyes because that's how we survive. That's yeah. that's how we survive generation after generation after generation. Like, well, I have and, a and lot. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was just going to say that I, I have a lot of compassion for my mother. And I have a lot of struggles with my mother. And one of the things I know about my mother is that her life has not been one of really being able to see the truth and own the truth. And that's what she was taught. It's really hard for me to expect something different from her when that's all she knows. Absolutely. And she was taught it as a method of survival. Yeah. I think that's where the compassion comes in. So when we, when I'm, when I was thinking about wanting to talk about parenting Um, It was really after experiencing or witnessing a few things that just struck me. And then um, sometimes things come online and people have their comments and how many people um, have normalized abuse Mm -hmm. uh, within the parent-child relationship. And it's not considered or called abuse from these particular perspectives, Largely because that is how parenting was experienced culturally in the, within their community. Um, but also, you know, it's this notion of, and I turned out all right. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you, every time, like, I just pray no one says that to me because I can't, I, did you? It's just the point. Did you? I mean, did I? I'm not knocking you. Did we? <laughs> like, no, no. And so, it is the survival nature. When I when I think about how my foremothers and forefathers had to survive yeah. in this country yeah. as stolen people from mm-hmm. the African continent brought here, mm-hmm. the way in which they had to navigate the world and survive mm-hmm. got passed down behaviorally and epigenetically. Yes. And so when I look at um, the remnants of that in my, in how I was parented, that was much stronger in how my mother was parented, which was even more stronger, right? Going back right, generations. Right, right. 
which this notion of don't talk back, don't ask questions. You don't get to say no, you do as you're told, right? Yeah. From a parenting perspective now, I don't parent my children that way. They get a voice. Then it was survival. It was survival. You do not talk back. You will die. This is a huge part of how we heal trauma is that we have to know the difference between that was then and this is now. That was then. This is now. I, I really, I love Resma Minicum. I know he has been a guest on your podcast. Mm-hmm. He is the author of My Grandmother's Hand. Love him. What I love so much about when I was reading his book is that it was confirming literally things that I had been saying in my mind yeah. and in talking about, which is the decontextualization of our experiences. And so when you are parenting your child right now, when they say, well, why? Don't ask me no questions because I said so. Let's let's look at the right now, right? Yeah. Six generations ago, that could have meant death. You have to teach your child not to talk back, right. to look down, to avert their gaze, because otherwise it could literally mean their death. Today, however, I have to realize that my child, my children need to be able to have a muscle developed where they can make decisions based off of information for themselves. The challenge that I've witnessed over time though, is, you know, we parent through this lens of survival that we sometimes don't even realize the survival, but then we have an expectation that our children are able to do things that we never taught them to do. We get frustrated when that child gets to middle school and they they fall into peer pressure, which is essentially doing what they're told to do. But you've spent the whole child's life telling them to do what they're told. It's true. We don't help them understand that you telling them to do something doesn't mean it's not different when the charismatic leader who is the same age as them also tells them to do something. It's true. And, you know, I think this is an interesting year that we're living in, in 2020 on so many levels. Um, But if I can just bring the pandemic portion of what we're all living through this year into it, many parents have their children at home more than usual. Mm -hmm. And I think this does an interesting piece because when our kids are with us more than their peers, we actually have a really unique and ripe opportunity to reshape some of that. As hard as this year is, and I'm not, I'm not talking about, um, I'm not trying to minimize this year in any way. Right. Um, I know my, my kids are home like Mm -hmm. all the time with me now. And, um, my partner and I are working from home and we're all home all the time. And, um, overall it's going okay. And I think the reason it's going okay is because we're all really able to take this time to learn more about each other. And I'm learning more about who my children are. And that's happening outside of the bubble of who their peers and their friends are. There's a little less social influence this year. That's such an excellent point. Uh, Thank you for bringing that up. An observation I made about my son Mm -hmm. during this time, he is also home, uh, learning from home. We are not homeschooling. He's just learning virtually. 
And um, there were a couple of things that I noticed uh, and how I had to conceptualize that. So one is my child uh, is not a person who likes school, right? He's going to send, he's going to go because he doesn't have choice, but he's not, I don't know that he'll ever be the kid that's like, yay school, especially when the aspects that he did like were taking away like recess and specials and friends, right? So just this aspect of learning is not something that innately gets him motivated. Right. I also realized, so he plays Fortnite and mm-hmm. when he is in search of virtual currency, which are called V bucks, my child becomes one of the most helpful people on the planet. Okay. <laughs> Let me take that trash out. He's vacuuming the floor. He, I mean, he is really concerned about the cleanliness of our home. Okay. He's earning money. Once he purchases said virtual currency, he no longer cares about the condition of our home. <laughs> right? You're like, hey, there's the trash. And it's like, um, you know, he'll take it out if you tell him to take it out. But that initiative goes away. Mm-hmm. And so I do remember sitting with my partner, Jay, and just having a kind like observing that, you know, like he, what motivate he's, he doesn't seem to be motivated. And I can be honest in that it, it started to uh, maybe concern me a little bit, but then I began to realize how different he is than me in the sense that I had to ask myself, well, why, why did I like school so much? It wasn't about learning. You know, no one ever sent me to school to learn. Right. I didn't go to school to learn until college. You know, when it's, I, it's interesting ahead. that we're talking about learning too, because that's where so much of my trauma comes from. Mm. And I think it's like that for many of us, because we're, we're, learning has been institutionalized. Yes. Right? We're all expected to do it in the same way. And what that does is that it doesn't really give any of us an opportunity to get known or to learn what lights us up care about that. Come on, Rebecca. Right. right. I, I know they don't care about that, but I think Shonda, yeah. I, I know that you know this, right? Like, um, that is such a crucial piece of our healing. Yes. Especially generationally to know what it is about ourselves that like, wh- where does that light live inside of you? What is it that, have- that, that excites you? And to have someone acknowledge your light and champion your light is so huge. And, and when you re- get to know your light, right? Well, what I realized with my son is why did I like school so much? It wasn't to learn. It was because I got value from getting good grades mm. and succeeding and accomplishing. Why was I so helpful? Because I also got value from being helpful yeah. from taking the burden off of other people. So when I began to look at my son who wasn't uber motivated to do either of those things. What I began to realize is that he understands implicitly that whether he wants to take out the trash or not, or wants to go to school, our love for him doesn't change. Right. That he doesn't have to earn his value and acceptance within our family system based on what he does. And it was in that moment that I was like, oh my goodness, that's breaking generational trauma cycles that's it, right there. That's generational trauma stopping here. That is wow. Then I began. Can, can we just slow that down for a minute though, Shonda? And, and, <laughs> yes. and talk about like the why behind it, like the why that that breaks the cycle. Cause I, I think it's an important piece that we can pull out. Um, and I think, you know, this is my impression of it and, and please add on to it. Um, 
I believe that so much of the why in there is because what we're saying is I may not like your behavior right now. And I can separate your behavior from your personhood. Absolutely. I'm not reducing you down to that behavior. I love you. I don't like your behavior. And that's, that is it, right? That my love and acceptance of you is based on you mm-hmm. and your inherent worth, yes. not on what you do or don't do, which then also says that I can have expectations for behavior. That's, yeah. that's okay. I get to have expectations. We get to have these things that you're required to do. But when he huffs and puffs the behavior of the thing, right? I still am not going to, I am going to love him regardless. And that's, that's where it starts. That's how it's the cycle stops. Because for me, it was very much not just do what you're told to do, but you better do it with a smile on your face. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to hear any huffing and puffing and lose the attitude. And don't you storm away and settle it down to don't have any expression. Right. Don't feel your feelings and express them. You were told you could feel your feelings, but feeling your feelings was different than expressing your feeling. Feeling your feelings was different than letting anybody else in on what your feelings were. Absolutely. So when he has his moments, don't get me wrong. I I get it wrong plenty where I, I jump to that thing, but then I have to stop and say, why does he not get to express it? I do. I'm expressing my feelings on him right now. Why does he not get to do the same? Can I share a little story with you? Absolutely. When I was a, when I was a teenager, um, my parents were away and my dad's parents were, were at my house kind of, you know, uh, watching after us, caring for us, my sister and I. And I don't remember like all the details because the context, like all of that isn't, it's important, but what's more important is what I'm about to tell you. Um, but I got really, really upset at my grandmother. I don't remember why, but I just remember like raging at her, being so upset. If I had ever raged at my parents like that, like I can't even tell you what would have happened. It would have been awful. And my grandmother did something that completely surprised me. She just put out her arms and she said, I know you're really mad right now and I still love you. Mm. That moment has stayed with me forever. And the reason of it is because I just felt loved. And I think that's the kind of thing we all need to heal more. We need just to know that we're loved. That's it. Just that we're loved. Just that we're loved. What I will say too is it was, it was, there were multiple things I would assume happening at that time. Mm -hmm. She didn't just say the words, no, but she did say the words. You heard them, but her outstretched arms she was willing to be in discord. She was willing just to be there with me. She didn't have to defend herself. She didn't have to protect herself. Nope. She she just extended that love to you. And I would imagine that her facial expression oh, yeah. met that. And that is it. That is how we start to shift these cycles. You know, I, I do remember specifically being told throughout my development by my mom like you, it, it was to the effect of you can, you can say whatever you can feel, whatever you want to feel. You can say whatever you want to say, but you need to do it behind your closed door. You can go in your room. You can say whatever you want. You can call me whatever you want. Just don't let me hear it. 
And that sent a message. Whatever you experience, you need to do behind closed doors. It's too shameful for us to see. Yeah. You don't get to show that or express that um, to other people. Now, I know that she was giving me what she had been given. And how would she have any knowing that the impact that, you know, that there could be something different. She didn't know that. So where a lot of my compassion comes for my mom, my grandmother is, is to realize the, the levels of survival they were in, um, in, in parenting their children based on what they had been given and where they found themselves. But that point about helping a child feel loved, not go away, get away from me, get yourself together, fix your face, whatever we say. And when you're ready to talk about it, come back. That's what we'll say to kids. That's what a timeout is, right? You go over there and think about what you've done. We are separating relationship, care, and safety from the experience of discord and conflict. And And what we really need is to bring them together. What we really need for healing is to be able to say, this doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good for you. It doesn't feel good for me. And I'm willing to be here in this with you because you matter. And I know I matter and our relationship matters. And so let's, let's figure this out together. Mm -hmm. Which also requires a, um, a disconnection from outcome. Yeah. We have to disconnect from outcome. It's not about, did they fix the behavior or did they do that? It's about, being in relationship with each other in that moment. One of the twins, she she likes to let you know when she's angry, okay? And she does that through exaggerated movements or picking something up and throwing it, never at someone. She just wants you to know she's mad. Yeah. So being able to call that out for her yeah. and then bring her in. And so it what's so interesting to me about this is there was an, uh, an incident with my mom and, and, and my daughter that was so wow to watch. So this was probably a couple of years ago, uh, around maybe around Thanksgiving, I think. My mom was visiting us and my one of my daughters, who again, <clears throat> is very demonstrative in her emotion. Uh, we were sitting down to eat and she was upset about something and um, <laughs> she wouldn't sit down to eat. So she was, you know, stomping. She had her arms crossed across her chest and she was, you know, doing all these things. And so my mother, I think she started by calling her name Skylar. And so as a parent who does not parent my child the way I was parented, I was in this moment of, do I interject? What do I do? And what I decided to do was just kind of let it play out. So what began to happen is my mother started to give her the look. Uh, the look is, I think multiple people can know what the look is for them <laughs> without me even, you know, talking about exactly what it is. But the look is what I avoided all of my life. Okay. From a very early age, part of what I was behaving well for and achieving for was to avoid the, the look, look, that look, right? So my mom is giving her the look. And I'm watching my mother give her the look, but I'm also watching her look back at my mother with confusion, right? Just kind of like she doesn't understand what's happening. She's not responding to the look 
in e- in either direction. She's just kind of maybe look a little confused and then she goes on to do different things. And so my mom intensifies the look <laughs> and, and Skylar continues to not respond to the look. And then she goes over to like the little kid chair that she had and she tipped it over. And my mom said, come pick up that chair. And, and Skylar doesn't respond immediately. Mm-hmm. And then my mother stood up She walked over to the chair. She took the look off. She changed her tone and she said, Skylar, come here and pick this chair up. And she, you know what Skylar did? Skylar walked over. Skylar picked up the chair. Mm -hmm. And then my mom said, Skylar, come sit down at the table so that you can eat. And you know what Skylar did? She walked over to the table and she sat down and she was sitting next to my mom. And then after probably not even a long time, less than 30 seconds probably my mother looked at her and she said Skylar look at me and Skylar looked at her and she said you know I love you right and I was thinking what the hell okay so wait a minute (laughs) who is this now maybe this was always her I don't know I spent so much of my time avoiding anything remotely close to that I don't know. Would that have been the experience? I like to think not because there are a number of experiences that weren't. (laughs) But I also realized that me allowing it to play, so many beautiful things happened in that moment. One, I wanted to high five myself when Skylar did not respond to the look (laughs) because I, I don't want my child to be moved by intimidation. And that's what that is. That's essentially what that is. I'm going to intimidate you to make you do what I say do. And I was so glad that growing up, you know, respect your elders and all that. No, I don't want my child to think that when someone tries to intimidate her, because she gonna grow up in this world as a black woman. Do you know how many times people try to intimidate me? If I moved and did what everyone told me to do every time I got the proverbial, the look, I wouldn't be where I am right now. So that was beautiful. But it was also beautiful to watch my mother realize she had to change her approach. You know, I and think that-, that that's a huge piece too. And I, my, um, my mother-in-law uh, lives really close to us and is with us a lot. And I'm bearing witness to massive healing between her and my husband through how she's parenting our children differently than she parented my husband. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, there's the capacity, you know, as, um, as for grandparents to, to look at something with a little more distance and do it a little differently. I absolutely. And that they are willing kudos to my mom, kudos to your mother-in-law for, for shifting and, and, and the beauty of that is again, I don't want to be, you know, like, well, the beauty of that is that it brings healing to all the generations, right? Because when you watch your mother, um, shift how she does something with your daughter, you also, the little child inside of you sees it and has a moment of a reflex that probably relaxes a little and doesn't have to feel so defended and can take that in, even though it's not happening to your little one inside, it's happening to your little one outside. But she, but my little inside is being healed and she feels yeah. safer yeah. And, 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 and how I've watched my mother engage with my children differently, mm-hmm. just, just across the board now. Right. And, and I also recognize how 
even though we live in different states, how eager they are to call her and video chat with her Mm -hmm. and do all of those things because their relationship with her is, is, is a, is a healthy relationship based on what they are doing, not Mm -hmm. what they should stop doing, right? How we can celebrate the light inside of them as you talked about. And so that for me has been huge. It's also been very helpful along that light part is if you, no one told me growing up that an option for an occupation was to just be yourself and people would pay you. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. Is that what we do? That's what I do. (laughs) I think that's what you do too. No one told us that because they didn't know it, right? So there were tons of options of what I could be. My dad really wanted me to go into business or computers. You know, there were all these things you could be, but no one told me one of the things I could be was Shonda. Hmm. I resent the question that often gets asked of children. What do you want to be when you grow up? I find it so disrespectful because what you're really asking is how do they want to make, how are they going to make money? Mm. What occupation do they want to have? That's not who they are. But then I realized that how I make money is who I am. It is who you are. Yeah. It is who I am. And so now another way that I can stop generational cycles of trauma is I can start early to start to help my children even consider who are you yeah now not who will you be not who, not will who you do be, but you who want you? to be who are you now so I have a little story for you about this whole who do you want to be when you grow up thing and how it plays out because I think we can't really escape who we are mm-hmm. right no matter how many people really try to get in the way and, and interrupt that I think it tends to still be there and it's our work just to uncover it when I was a young one and someone would have asked me that question, I, my answer probably would have been that I wanted to be a marine biologist because I really wanted to study dolphins and learn more about communication. Mm. Um, and then it only took like probably 13 years of my uh, schooling to diagnose me with a learning disability. Mm. Um, so I had a lot of like educational trauma that came in. And then by the time I was actually diagnosed, Someone's grand idea was to take me out of science classes. Oh, what? So um, no one really understood who I was. And anyway, I have ended up by the course of going through art school and learning how to communicate in different ways and finding my way into being a therapist and learning how to communicate deeper and figure all this stuff out. I'm kind of doing the work that I initially wanted to do. Uh... I'm just not doing it with dolphins. I'm doing it with humans. That is so awesome. Right? So I I think that um, that light is there. And like I I called it marine biology at the time because I didn't have other words for it. But I think what I really wanted to do was like really sensitive communication. Maybe maybe the non-wordly stuff. That is so good. <laughs> like, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, you know, interestingly, I the when I first got asked the question, I, I think around, around kindergarten, my response was I want to be an artist. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in kindergarten, I drew something that mm-hmm. didn't look like whatever I would, what, that I, I didn't think it was good enough. Yep. And I literally stopped 
creating art until oh, I'm 2010. So sorry. I know. Doesn't that break your heart? It breaks my heart. Um, and honestly, throughout time, when that question, there was no name for it. Mm-hmm. But what did I? What did I want to do? I wanted to talk. Yeah. <laughs> like literally, I I wanted to talk and. I wanted to observe people. If there was a job to pay me to observe people and to talk, that's what I wanted to do. Well, you do you found know yourself what I do there. right now? <laughs> you know, as you were talking, I mean, I know I've said those in pieces, but I never put them together. That's exactly what I do. And um, I, I tried to make time for art on the side, but what I do is I create. Yeah. I do create. And so it. I love that we can't escape who we are. Here's the thing with parenting. And then I definitely want to move into other ways it shows up in your life. Yeah. But the thing with parenting is well-meaningly, my, you know, as parents, we have the life experience that we have and then we have our children and we want to set them on the best course toward whatever we deem is, I don't even think people are using the word healthy. They use words like productive citizen, Um, (laughs) you know, these things, right? We want, we have this vision for our child. The challenge is when we have not done our own healing work, then we are filtering that through our wounds and our lens. And what happens is we sometimes end up plucking our children off the path they were intended to go. For the I, sake of the path we put them on. Yeah, I, I think that this is a big piece. And and if I could just break it down a tiny bit, mm-hmm. one of the, the big things that I, one of the ways that I define healing, right? It's it's in the unblending of what's mine and what's yours. Mm-hmm. I like that. Right? So it, when I start to do that unblending work, I can start to understand that some of the trauma and the shame and the anger and the the, the passion even, like the big feelings that I've been carrying for a long time, some of those are not mine, right? They, they come from my parents or my grandparents. Like they, you know, I, I grew up the, the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors hearing big weighty things like, you're the reason I lived. Oh. And, you know, that even the love in that is a lot to carry. Yeah. Right. And so, so learning to unblend that and like, okay, that's their stuff. What is mine? What am, what are my emotions? What am I feeling? And, and unblending that also helps me parent because when I can unblend that, then I can see like, this is how I feel. This is how my child feels. And we can have different feelings about things and it doesn't make mine right or theirs wrong. It just makes us two different people. Absolutely. Two different people who were set to be on two different paths. Mm -hmm. And when we don't unblend, I really love that. Then we oftentimes set our kids on our path or some alternate path. Now, ultimately, what happened for me, what happened for you, what happens to so many people is we find our way back to that path. But I don't think sometimes parents understand. Yeah. You know, it's like the unintentional effort and time that it takes to come back to the path when if we could nurture the path that they're on originally, then then they would be set on that. And so I I do appreciate so many of the experiences um, that I am able to unblend, mm-hmm. do my healing work, give back what's not mine to the various place, rightly assign their responsibility then I'm able to 
understand things like my worth, my value, my boundaries, how to take care of myself, right? So we talk about DART, the five core practices. When I'm able to do that, then I can help my children do the same just by what I'm modeling, just by what I'm doing, how I'm existing. So one of one of the things, you know, as I'm I'm completing my DART training, and one of the things that this training has taught me as I deepen into it is how much um, I still have to learn about my self-care, right? Mm-hmm. And as I learn where those empty holes are, where are those places in my life where I didn't really learn how to tune in and to care for myself in XYZ ways, then I can also notice like, oh, those are things I still need to teach my kids, mm-hmm. right? Like these are still places I need to show up for them. And maybe I hadn't been showing up because I didn't know I needed to even do it for myself. Absolutely. And I think it opens us up to learn from our children. Yes. One of the issues that I'm constantly working on is moderation. Mm-hmm. How do you play? How do you have fun? You know, how do you be moderate? And when I can realize that about myself, I can lean into my children being the best teachers of how to play because that's what they do. And, and when I am, when I do that, then I'm no longer trying to stifle their existence and their play and how they engage with the world. Um, I will bring it back to, so scripturally, if you're of the Christian tradition, um, there, there's a scripture where Jesus says, unless you become as one of them, you will not enter the kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. And it always amazed me because we got a whole bunch of adults always trying to change kids into adults when scripturally it tells you that you need to be more like them. Wow. What an opportunity to learn from children instead of always stepping into the position where we need to be teaching them. And often what we're teaching them is our own traumatized, broken ways of existing. So I just Mm. want to throw that out there. So beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) So, yes. Well, this has been the conversation on parenting that I have truly been longing to have. So thank you. You're welcome. For that. But this is not the only way that it shows up in your life. And so from a professional perspective, can you tell us a little bit about how you bring generational healing into your scope of practice? Yeah, well, so much of my, I don't work with kids. Um, I do work with some parents, um, but generally who I'm working with are um, adults, couples, and relationships and um, individuals who want to do relationships better. So all of my work is focused on relationship. And so much of that relational healing, if I want to learn how to be in my current relationship in a healthier way where I can really show up and be my authentic self, um, so much of that comes back to learning the five core, right? Like learning how to love myself, learning how to protect myself, learning how um, to know who I am, how to speak up for what I need and want and how to do all that um, with vitality and, and moderation and balance. And so in order to do that, I often have to go back into different aspects of, of my wounds, of the places where those things weren't really done well and learn how to how to care for those parts of me, even if I'm caring for them um, in a little bit of like an imaginary kind of way. Because 
there's there's science that shows that even if I'm kind of like putting my little um, five-year-old self in front of me in a chair and talking to them, that I'm engaging a different part of my brain, a more intact part of my brain while I'm imagining that happening. Yes. I, I, I say it all the time. The brain doesn't know the difference between memory, reality, and imagination. Mm-hmm. And so it's so pointed that when we, like you said, bring that young version of ourselves in front of us, we have that conversation, we embrace them and hold them. We wipe their tears. We help them feel safe. We are engaging a different part of the brain and it's activating our body yeah. to respond to the brain's engagement. And when we do that, we get our our modern current day brain into a more intact um, place. And from that place, we can do relationship better in the here and the now. Because so often what couples especially are doing is that when they're in relationship with each other, it's like their five or their 15-year-old self is in relationship with their partner's seven or 13-year-old self. And they're constantly flooding each other and dumping their stuff on one another because nobody's picking it up and dealing with it. And what we have to do is learn how to deal with our own stuff and our own wounds and how to care for those parts just like they're our little children. And um, that's where healing comes from, because when both people in a relationship can begin to be accountable for their own stuff, there can be massive transformation and growth, and that relationship can become so many different things. But it, it's, it's not, um, you know, we, we move from a state of an immature relationship where we have this fairy tale dream that we expect things are going to be great, and our partners are going to read our minds, and we're going to have long walks on the beach in the sunlight. And we move from that into a more mature version of a relationship where, you know, I know that you don't do the dishes on a regular basis and you leave them in a pile in the sink and your laundry doesn't make it even into the hamper. And I love you anyway. And I still would rather be with you than without you. And so that's what my work is. That's what I help people figure out. Um, And that's the journey I take them on. And I just... um, took almost 40 people with, with two co-facilitators through two full days, like 12 hours of um, what we call an essential skills relationship boot camp. We're going to be doing another one in April of 2021. And um, it was it was phenomenal. It was amazing to see people come in kind of on the brink and leave after two days with a lot of hope and um, really um, opening opening the places within themselves where they could bring awareness. So to, to their own walls and to their own boundarylessness and to the ways in which um, power dynamics, like where, where they go one up or where they put themselves in a shameful one down position um, or, or allow that to happen in relationships, like really playing with all of those dynamics um, and, and bringing a lot of awareness and, and empathy to it. That is such beautiful work. Thank you for the work that you do. Mm. You know, in the example you gave, what what occurred to me, you know, as part of the work we do to help people is that person who is uh, shifting to be able to say, your dishes stay in a pile in the sink, your clothes don't make it to the hamper, and I love you anyway. Mm-hmm. It requires them to be under to understand for themselves that they can be lovable when they don't do something. Yes. And it's hard to give that to someone else when you don't even believe that's possible for you. Right. And so that's what I love about the work. Because when we do this relational work with people, you're focusing maybe on a, a, a um, two people who are partnered romantically, mm-hmm. 
but it also impacts the way we engage with our children. And oh, our so much. And our coworkers and, and ourselves. And so it's literal relational work across the span. It's of totally all across relationships. The span. I, I, you know, I, I, I say, I probably just say this to myself all the time, but I'm going to say it out loud right now that I, I think there's so much healing that this world needs. And this is just the place where I focus because it's the place that I think I, I have some capacity to impact some form of change. And I think it's bigger than just the two people or the one person that's in my office because we, we live in relational biospheres, right? The energy between us becomes kind of the air we breathe. And anybody that's living inside of the energy between us, anyone that's living inside of that biosphere is picking that up. It's like, you ever go over to somebody's house right after they had a fight and they open the door with a smile on, but you can still feel the tension <laughs> in the air, mm-hmm. right? That's what we're transforming. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful that in little increments, I can have an impact on that biosphere. And that, that all the people, all the brave, courageous souls that... Um, come into my office and come to my workshops and that I get to work with, they can have an impact on that. And and everybody that they come into contact with can start to experience relationships differently and that their children learn how to do relationships through their modeling differently. Such great work. Thank you so much for how you contribute to shifting uh, people's relationships and uh, the energy that is created based on those relationships. Mm. Thank you, too. I want to talk for 10 more hours. However. Yeah, I do, too. But I think people might get <laughs> tired of will, listening to yeah, it. You know? So maybe <laughs> we'll just do a, a, a another round at some point. But I do want to provide the opportunity for you to share with listeners um, about your podcast and how people might get in touch with you or find you if they want to reach out to you. Yeah, sure. Um my podcast, my work, my workshops, all of it is um, on my website, and that's connectfulness.com. That's C-O-N-N-E-C-T-F-U-L-N-E-S-S.com. Awesome. And um, so we'll definitely have that information in the show notes for you all if you want to get in touch uh, with Rebecca. I genuinely um, appreciate you being here. I was looking forward to the time we would spend together. It did not disappoint Um I very much appreciate you spending the time with us. Well, thank you for having me, Rosetta. Absolutely. A special shout out to Trey Angel, who provides the music for the Labors of Love podcast, to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media, and of course, to you, my listeners. Thank you for spending time with me. I never take it for granted. If you'd like to reach out to me, have questions or suggestions for content or guests, please reach me at www.thelaborsoflove.com. Don't forget, we are on all the major social media outlets. Head over to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube page, where every Thursday we have a Therapy Thursday video. And our Therapy Thursdays are now being broadcast on our podcast platform. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, share, and give us that five-star rating for the Labors of Love podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well.